0: Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-IV task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Allen describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode.
1: Good morning, this is Marvin Goldfrey uh, with my esteemed colleague.
2: Alan Francis, a good, good morning again, Marvin.
1: Good morning again, and we are going to be uh, having another podcast of Talking Therapy. And today we're going to, uh, well, I'm going to be sharing some of my experiences, some of which Alan may disagree with. So. We'll see what happens. Uh, and namely, it's uh, the journey that I personally experienced from behavior therapy to cognitive behavior therapy. And it started back in the mid 1960s, 65, 66. And this is when uh, Stony Brook became one of the centers in the, in the US for training behavior therapists. And one of the things we did with our training is that we set it up so that we had a psych- psychology department clinic and the faculty actually did therapy in the clinic as part, in, part of their teaching, um, which would then later be turned over to postdocs and graduate students, uh, and then the faculty would supervise. But, but originally we were doing the therapy And I remember one case that that got me thinking that behavior therapy was not enough. And this was an undergraduate who came in with public speaking anxiety. He could not speak in class. He was just much, much too anxious. And I started working with the tools that we had at the time, namely desensitization, where he would imagine himself speaking in a in a gradually hierarchical way, um, just, you know, making a comment and then saying a little bit more. So it became, you know, stepwise graded uh, experiences with relaxation. And it was not working. And it wasn't clear to me why it wasn't working. But then he got sick and he was out of therapy and also of classes for about, a week or two he came back afterwards, and I had not seen him for this period of time, but he had been back to class, and he said, "I'm cured. I oh, got cured. I mean, the fact that you were sick, that, does that beat behavior therapy?" I said, "What happened?" He said, "Well, I went into class. And the instructor said, "Gee, I missed you. I've, I hope you're okay. Are you feeling better? Well, welcome back." And once the instructor did that, he felt free to speak. So what do you make of that, Alan? Behavior therapy? Well, I think it'd be interpreted in lots of ways. Let's hear your interpretation. My interpretation is that he viewed the class situation differently. It was not a desensitization, but it was a change in his perception. And how did he view it? He, well my assumption was he viewed it as a safer situation, Uh, Mm -hmm. that the the instructor was not, quote, dangerous. So So he wasn't just a black box. there was something going on in his mind that affected him. Exactly, something going on. So this coincided with uh, with Jerry Davison joining the faculty. And Jerry Davison studied at Stanford with Albert Bandura. And Bandura was cognitive in his research. His research, I think, was based on the work of Julian Roeder and George Kelly. These are two names that virtually nobody knows anymore, but they were back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And they had what was thought of as a social learning point of view, where they said a lot of people's problems were due to problematic expectations. And then Bandura came along and, did a lot of research on expectations, which he called efficacy expectations. That is the person's prediction. If I enter this situation, I'll be able to handle it. Or if I enter this situation, I will not be able to handle it. So Jerry came with this other approach of cognition, but also behavior therapy. And that started a dialogue among us in the clinical faculty. And this was in the 60s. We had never heard of Beck before. They were just beginning at that point to publish. I think his book was 67. Yeah. One of his first books, or maybe his first book. So we, there there was um, a lot of resistance on the part of the desensitization and the operant wing of behavior therapy to introduce cognition. But we formed a small group at Stony Brook and we presented at a conference, the role of cognition in behavior modification. So it was called behavior modification, sometimes behavior therapy at, at the time. And this was 1968. I suspect Tim Beck got winged of this. This was at a, um, uh, an American Psychological Association meeting, he got wind of it, and he contacted us. And we started to have a correspondence uh, in the late 60s, 69. So he saw that behavior therapy was becoming very popular, and that there was an interest in cognition that was growing in some circles. Um, So he contacted us. I don't know if you were aware of this or not, Alan.
2: I think you mentioned it, but I'm really interested to hear more about it. Yeah. So I have,
1: I have before me a, a copy of a letter that he sent January 12, 1970, uh, referring back to early contacts we had had. And he said that he was presenting, he, he was uh, working on a book, probably the cognitive therapy book. And he wanted to, when we had spoken before about the notion of graded task assignments, and he wanted to know what the reference was to that, so that he could include it uh, in the book. And it basically, it was a notion of getting the patient to start doing things, which later became labeled in, in his way behavior activation behavioral activation, which was part which was the early stages of uh, of cognitive therapy. Uh, and then he concluded the letter by saying. Um, I'm hoping to visit Stony Brook sometime in the spring of 1970. I would want to arrange a visit to coincide with the time that you and your colleagues would be available so that we could have an exchange of ideas. This is great, it's kind of oral history. Yeah, I think of it as behavioral history, but okay. <laughs> Starting behavioral and then, uh, and then oral. So what started to happen then in the uh, 70s, is that we put together panels. When I say we, I mean some of us in behavior therapy, Jerry Davison, uh, Arnie Lazarus, Michael Mahoney, Don Meichenbaum, and people like Beck. And Ellis came to the fore. So that's when we we discovered uh, Ellis. I don't know how many people know about Ellis. Well,
2: it's interesting that Ellis, I think, actually is a little bit earlier than Beck <coughs> with rational emotive therapy. Yes, the, it was the, in the 50s. Yep, he developed a, an institute in Manhattan. And one of the things I like about this history is that you could have had competition between Beck and Ellis, because they both were doing very similar work and mm-hmm. making similar claims, but they became pretty good friends, and they they both um, were, were generous enough to recognize each other, but also to recognize the Stoic philosophers from ancient Greece, both were right. very specific in saying that there was nothing in cognitive therapy that hadn't been said 2,300 years before by the Stoic philosophers. Right. And one of the things I'd recommend to anyone interested in this area, the best summary of Stoic philosophy was written by a Greek slave named Epictetus, who eventually became a counselor to the emperor of the Roman Empire. Born a slave, became a counselor. And his sayings, gathered by his students, are a beautiful manual of, of um, cognitive therapy. There's yeah, a famous, what,
1: what was that? Qu- he's always quoted what the people are disturbed, not by things,
2: but their view of things or something to that effect. Exactly right. The, the, yeah. the, whole, the whole concept can be summarized in that one, that one, con- one right. thought, that it's not the external events that happen to you. But it's, it's our the, way you react, the way you react to them, your perceptions of them. And if you can control yourself right. and actually very similar to, to Buddhism and Jainism, from 200 years before that, so that there's been a tendency going back deep into the ancient world to develop cognitive therapy, and it came to fruition again in the 1960s, with you being part of that, with you being Marvin, you being part of that history, Buddha, Epictetus, (coughs) Beck, Ellis, and Marvin Goldfrey. What
1: did I know from Epictetus? I grew up in Brooklyn. I knew from Coney Island and
2: Nathan's hot dogs. I didn't know anything from Epictetus. Anyway. Well, I, think that, that, I think that illustrates a very important point. Yeah. Two important points. First of all, why, why would we have three different d- schools of thought, maybe many more than three, developing cognitive therapy at the same time? Very similar to Leibniz and Newton developing calculus at the same time. That There was a force. That was driving people to realize that psychodynamic principles were not enough, right? And the behavioral principles weren't enough, right? And, and, the and focusing on current cognitions was very important. Yeah, and the reason we were interested in
1: it was because it was there. We saw it clinically. We saw it clinically. So you know, clinical observation, I, I really think, is is crucial in the development of the, of the field, which. I think I've said again and again, and a lot of researchers poo-poo that, but but I remain, you know, very firm in that in that belief. But he, but here was here's what what made it difficult. It, we defined behavior therapy as the extrapolation of research findings from the lab into the clinic. So what were the research findings about cognition in the sixties? Not very much. So we had to wing it, and we had to wing it on the basis of, well, what other people has observed, like, like Beck, like Ellis. So the introduction of cognition into behavior therapy came from a clinical need that practitioners had rather than an extrapolation. And that rubbed some people the wrong way, particularly the people who were um, avowedly into classical and operant conditioning. And as many people know, the advancement of science and other fields is not a pure intellectual process. And as we started doing this, we got a lot of flack from the, the learning people. Because they said, here's what we know about learning. We don't know anything about, or very little about cognitive learning. So what are you doing? It's just too much speculation. And one person, Michael Mahoney, who had um, his undergraduate background was very, very Skinnerian. And then he went to Stanford to study with Bandura and he participated and was very close to Beck, worked with Beck in, in advocating the introduction of cognition into behavior therapy. He was pressured, if not threatened by some people who had taught him about operant conditioning and as being a turd coat. And so this is the soft underbelly of, of science, which I'm, I'm sure you have seen in, in your experiences and particularly with DSM, the role of participants emotion
2: in the decision-making process. Yeah, and I, again, it, 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 the hubris of the original behavior therapist was quite remarkable. the The idea that all of human experience could be reduced to stimulus and response, and that but manipulating one, you could change the other in any straightforward way, without considering the fact that human beings are much more complicated than the animal experiments that they derive their knowledge from. Furthermore, even the animal experiments required, you had to have a hungry dog to have Pavlovian responses. That It was never as pure. The experiments were always reductionistic, always isolating certain variables and overemphasizing their meaningfulness. And I think the one place that you and I do have a fundamental disagreement, we, we agree on almost everything, but you highly value the research element of psychotherapy as informing the practice of psychotherapy. yes and i don't well i'll tell you why
1: because clinical observation is faulty but research yeah, is faulty great. and that's and that's been documented right. research They're is both biased both. Yeah. however if research findings come up with the same conclusion as clinical findings both of which have different methods then there's probably a phenomenon there so i see the convergence of the two and sometimes the research is wrong, and sometimes the clinical observation is wrong. But when they coincide, I think there's a powerful phenomenon. you again, disagree not, with
2: that? I'm certainly not against psychotherapy research. i never involved with it a lot. But I, I, I think that the contributions it can make to practice have to be understood as limited. And when research contradicts extensive clinical experience, I worry about the methodology of the research. When I clinical- do, too. When clinical experience is based on just one person's idiosyncratic way of doing things, I distrust that as well. I think we have to have a common sense approach to both. Right. And what I'm saying is that since both are faulty,
1: when they agree is when we find something of substance that we can really count on. Hopefully. And that's my, that's my rule of thumb because and when I work with patients, I say that. Um, explicitly, I say, you know, both research and clinical observation have indicated X, Y, and Z, have indicated that if we use this procedure, there's a high likelihood you're going to get rid of your panic attacks. Uh, and I see that happen clinically, and I see that in the research literature. So I feel confident uh, in saying that. And I think that's what we should strive for, the, the agreement between practice and research.
2: Going back to what you were saying before, how cognitive therapy had to fight against the opposition of the strict behaviorists, Yes, it also had to fight against the um, opposition of the strict and and sterile psychoanalysts. Yes. That That Beck had been trained as an analyst, saw himself as an analyst. He actually saw what he was doing as being within the umbrella of psychoanalysis. And it could have been a tremendous moment in the history of psychodynamic psychotherapy if Beck had been embraced and if cognitive therapy could have been seen as one form of psychodynamic treatment, but he was actually rejected for inclusion in the analytic movement. Cognitive therapy was not seen as something that could be an extension of of psychodynamic therapy. So just as the behavior therapists were too rigid to understand that we needed an integrated holistic view of therapy and of people, the analysts were equally unwilling to accept Beck and, and, and Ellis and you as part of one unified psychotherapy. And I think the tragedy of psychotherapy is that we then went from having three schools we now have 50, each type of therapy picking out a very narrow component and acting as if it's independent of all the others. I'd be very interested
1: if you would agree for, for us to make on the next podcast on your uh, personal experiences your oral history as well as intellectual history of of psychoanalysis and where it went right where it where it went right and where it went wrong
2: sure we can do that
1: we can do that let's yeah. finish up the time we have on yours. is uh, more
2: interesting though i think
1: well i but yours will be more interesting to me. Mine may be interesting to you. And I, hopefully, hopefully. I, both yeah. I could not be more boring to me. But I Oh, come on. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, what we both have to say will be interested, interesting to the people who watch or listen to this. OK, but we're coming toward the end, so I don't want, you know, I promised lots of people that, that we're going to keep these podcasts so that they are treadmill friendly. Um, <laughs> Or or there's somebody 30 minutes, 30 25 to 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, or somebody says that 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 is somebody in in, uh, Amsterdam said that's his his commute to work, so he listens as he bicycles to, to work, and this fits in perfectly. So we have to, you know, keep our limits. One of the more unfortunate things that has happened in the field of psychotherapy is the confusion between cognitive therapy and cognitive behavior therapy. Beck called his intervention, cognitive therapy. Unfortunately, when his intervention was used in the NIMH collaborative project for the treatment of depression in the eighties, they called it cognitive behavior therapy. I don't know who decided on that, but they made a mistake and nobody really corrected them until more recent years. There's a big difference. Between the two, there are methods of of, of CBT that are not part of cognitive therapy, at least according to uh, the Beck et al manual. Problem solving, relaxation, behavior rehearsal. What Beck picked up was graded task assignments and behavioral activation, but that was mainly to get the person functioning uh, and to get them to change their thinking. Whereas in CBT, That's the case. But it's also the case that sometimes the behavioral rehearsal is needed to teach a person how to be more competent in their functioning. So for depressed people who have problems in functioning, getting them to change their thinking is not enough. They've got to change their behavior
2: so it's more effective. And CBT has that option. I can't imagine seeing a patient with the thought in my mind, as I go into the room, I'm going to do behavior therapy with this patient, or I'm going to do cognitive therapy with this patient, or I'm going to do psychodynamic therapy with this patient, or I'm going to do systems therapy. I've never seen a patient where everything didn't help at one point or
1: another. The reality, if, if it's not working clinically, you got to find something else. And I think there has been an evolution so that, at least Judy Bick calls the intervention now cognitive behavior therapy and brings in behavioral stuff.
2: But originally, it was not. Yeah, even more in the last 10 years of of, uh, Tim's work before he died last year. And in Judy's work now, they very much are including the techniques of recovery, which focus on goal setting for the future, on finding meaning in life, on uh, spiritual values. I think that the, the psychotherapy should be seen in the broadest possible way. And those therapists and therapies that allow themselves to be integrated with others are the ones that have the most meaning, whereas those I, therapies that develop walls surrounding themselves and provide a very narrow window and very narrow skill set for therapists, I think do a disservice to patients and do a disservice to the therapists because they become exactly. They become yes. hammers looking for nails, right?
1: Exactly. It's it, the intervention be determined by what is required to help the patient, rather than the dictates of the therapeutic school. And good therapists recognize that. You know, in my more in my more smart alecky moods, what I often say is, Skinner was right when it comes to therapy. And he was right in the sense that when the therapist does something that works, even though it's not part of their treatment orientation, and the patient changes, the patients reinforce the therapist right. to use these other methods.
2: <laughs> well, that, that Marvin, I'd really love you next discuss. When we met in the early 80s, you were already a prominent integrationist, one of the few at the time. How did you go from what you've just discussed to seeing your life's work as being integrating the various techniques rather than having to be atomistic? For the future, but next week you're going to be talking about. Bring that up a little bit now. Give us a preview now. We have about eight minutes left. Give us a little preview of how you became an integrationist. Skinner was right. I tried stuff from other approaches
1: and it worked. Sometimes patients like to hear why they are having the problems now. So spending some time on the historical origins, even though I may have been practicing CBT, seemed to make it easier for them to understand what the change process was like and for them to cooperate. So it was really through clinical practice. But the whole integration movement, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that. I have mixed feelings about where that came from. Uh, it started off as a wonderful young child and we nurtured it and, and had it grow, but in it's now later years, um, it seems to have been gone, going into a variety of different directions, uh, not all of which I'm totally happy with, but I'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. But let me just cl- close off, uh, my comments. And here's where I am hoping to correct your thinking. (laughs) There was no father and there was no mother of behavior therapy. It was a family affair. There were lots of people involved and it emerged and it didn't have a label until I think the late seventies. So the book that Jerry Davison and I wrote and, Published in 1976, was not called cognitive behavior therapy; it was called clinical behavior therapy. And yet, we spoke about cognition a lot, but we didn't have the word, the label for it. So it kind of came up, and I don't know where it came from, but it was in, in probably in the late uh, in the late 70s. I mean, this letter from Beck was in the early 70s, and his work with us in the collaboration was in the mid 70s. So I think it it, it evolved.
2: Yeah, no, we agree completely on that. And I think that that's the way therapy should evolve. I, I think that the identification of therapy with any one person or any one style of, of, of doing therapy or any one manual reduces the fact that there's a great common wisdom across all therapeutic contexts, and that we need to be drawing from that common wisdom rather than seeing separate schools, separate founders. Sounds good. I'll just do a little
1: quote before we end. We should be more interested in what is right, not who is right. And we have to somehow change that way of thinking. And once we do, I think the field of psychotherapy will make some very significant advances.
2: And my, my way of seeing the same thing or saying say the same things, follow the patient. Don't follow a manual, don't follow a training course, follow the patient. And also follow us.
1: <laughs> because we like to follow the patient, but we also like to talk about stuff that many other people don't talk about. And uh, I hope our listeners and watchers uh, find it of interest. Thank you all, and we will talk to you in our next podcast. Bye-bye. Be safe, everyone.